Have you ever found prayer to be a challenge? Have you ever found it hard to focus on what it is that you ought to bring before God? I know about you, but I have. I have found it many times difficult to know exactly what to say to the God of the universe, to the King of kings and Lord of lords, to the God who spoke and everything came into being. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about these challenges to prayer. We're going to specifically be talking about a text that really is at times controversial because of the fact that the way that it's been interpreted by different people. Uh, but the importance really is that there are challenges to prayer that we all need to address, no matter where we land on maybe the topic that's going to be discussed. Well, let's read in 1 John chapter 5. We're going to read verses 14 through 17. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So we're going to be looking at two things in this text. Number one, praying with confidence, verses 14 and 15. And number two, praying for those among us, verses 16 and 17. Let's start with number one, praying with confidence, verses 14 and 15. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Well, the verse starts off with a phrase that I think we need to pay attention to. This is the confidence that we have in him. Your confidence in prayer does not come from yourself. Your confidence in prayer does not come from what you and I do well. Your confidence in prayer comes from your confidence in God. It starts with Him. The unfortunate thing is, is that in a world of self-love and self-sufficiency, we are consumed with ourselves even when it comes to our prayer lives. So many believers think that there's this magic formula, if I just follow it, God is my magic genie that will deliver whatever I want. The confidence is in themselves and their prayer rather than in him. That's a big mistake. And you and I fall into that trap many times unknowingly. Most believers that do that do not even re recognize that they do that. It gets to the point where believers credit themselves for God answering prayer instead of having confidence in him. You'll have statements like this, oh my goodness, the prayer worked. Or here's another one, it's common. You, you pray, that's why this happened. Many times giving credit to the one praying rather than to the God that answered. We need to be careful not to take glory away from God. This is an important factor that is missed by the church today. When people gather together to pray before God, many times it's about their own selfish desires. 
It is not about God's glory. It is not about his fame. It is not for Jesus to be magnified. It's to show people that, see, I prayed, look at what happened. The idea of confidence here is boldness or openness. Essentially determined or convinced confidence. You can be confident that God hears because of who he is, not because of who you are. God does want to hear from his own. But the promise is not that you just get whatever you want. That is a misapplication of prayer. And unfortunately, it's infiltrated the church for centuries. If we ask anything, what does it say? According to his will. There's a qualifier. The qualifier isn't, are you a good person today? God will hear you. The qualifier is, if you ask anything according to his will. This is the qualifier for confidence in him when we are aligned with his will. That means that there's obedience that's involved when we come before him in prayer. Many of our prayers are simply not aligned with his will. Unfortunately, many do not pray as this verse clearly states. Now, I want you to think through this and see where you are in your prayer life. This is a self-evaluation, not an evaluation of someone else around you, in front of you, behind you, someone that's not even here this morning or not watching online right now. This is an evaluation of you and me. Ask yourself these questions. Which of these types of prayers do I pray? Okay? Let's be a little more practical this morning. Number one, praying selfish prayers with boldness. These are folks that will pray that God gives me more money or prosperity, not so I can give more, but so I can hoard more. God, please do this for me. I love prosperity. Please do this for me. That's essentially the prayer of a selfish person that boldly claims that that's what God needs to give them. It's penetrated the church big time. This has infiltrated big time. It's broken the hearts of many men and women in the church. Praying selfish prayers with boldness. Prayer for better health. Now that sounds like, well, that's not a selfish prayer. That's what God would want me to do. It is a selfish prayer if you don't care to truly want to live for him. If you're only trying to enable your life to get better because you're not feeling well without the intention of trying to glorify him, it is a selfish prayer. Many of the saints of God have been glorified by God leaving the suffering in their life rather than alleviating them of the suffering in their life. When you pray, is it to use your health for his glory or only to continue to fulfill your desires? How about this one? Praying selfish prayers with boldness for life to be easier. I think we've all prayed that one. God, it's getting too much. I just can't handle it. It's an honest prayer, but many times it's very self-centered. It is not for us to have endurance or perseverance, but for God to just kind of make it easier on us. Don't ask God to take things away that he's using to actually build your endurance. Realize that many times those are the very things you and I need. And yes, sometimes they don't make sense as it doesn't to many saints that we read about in the Word of God. But God does those things in our lives to build us in our faith. And at times he does take away those things when he sees that we've learned the lesson, if you will. 
How about this one? Sure, it's never happened to you. Praying selfish prayers with boldness that relationships will be smoother. Like, I can't handle them in my life. It's too much. God, I want it smoother, please. Make it easier on me. Not so I can develop more into who God would want me to be. Have you ever prayed for someone else, only realized that God's going, like, you, you got some work to do. You're a little self-centered here. You just want your life to be easier. If we're going to take our cue from Jesus, we're going to see that Jesus himself went through all sorts of things that you and I would not want to relate with. We want the easier path when Jesus promises suffering. All who live godly will suffer persecution. That's a statement in the word of God. Do you want to believe that one? No, we want to avoid that one. I don't want to hear that one. I just want the blessing text. Don't tell me that there's suffering in my life. So we have prayers that are selfish prayers that we pray with boldness. Here's another one. Praying God-honoring prayers inconsistently. How many of us fall into this category at times? We pray for opportunities to witness, but we only do so reluctantly, right? Because like, we know God's going to answer that one. Like, God's going to do this. If I pray for him to give me opportunities to witness with the gospel, he's going to answer that one. So you know what we do? I'm not going to pray as often. I don't don't want to do that right now. God, you're, you're asking too much right now. I want to be a little more comfortable. Don't ask me to share the gospel. How about this? Praying God-honoring prayers, which is true. We pray for God to mend broken relationships. We genuinely do care. But we give up when it seems to be getting too hard for too long. You ever been there? You've been praying for somebody. You've been praying for it to get better. It hasn't gotten better, and you just quit. You gave up. You gave up a long time ago. You're like, I've tried, I've prayed, I'm done. How about this one? Many saints of God have done this. Praying for strength to face the trials of their day. The trials of life. Praying for strength to face them. Only to quit praying when you find a little rest. You ever seen that happen in your life? God finally alleviates the pressure. It's not as hard now you stop praying you think you can take it from there you ever done that thank you lord i've got it now i figured it out i'll ask you when i need help again how about this one it's a god-honoring prayer but we pray this inconsistently praying for others needs in the moment you ever been consumed by what someone else is going through and you pray for them that, that day, only to forget the next day? You ever done that? Oh, I've done it as a pastor. Oh, yeah, I saw that person. They, they were broken. They had something going on in their life. I felt convicted and moved to pray. And then I forgot about it a couple days down the road. This is the inconsistency many times in our lives. They're, those are God-honoring prayers. We're asking God to move in a person's life, to help them in their life. And we quit because it gets hard. And we quit because we forget. Here's another approach to praying that we may have. And this one we've mentioned before in other series. Praying God-honoring prayers with doubt. You ever done that? 
Praying for difficult people in your life, never believing that God can actually change the person you're praying about. You ever done that? I've really prayed about it, but I really doubt God's going to do anything here. Have you seen them? They're impossible. Here's the reminder you and I always need. A murderer of Christians turns into the greatest apostle the Lord has sent. The most passionate disciple. The author of the majority of the books that you have in your New Testament. The impossible became possible because of God. And yet this is how we pray, right? God, I pray for this person. I pray you move in their heart. Faith, forget it. I doubt it'll happen, but I'm just going to pray. How about this one? Praying for God to work in our lives to bring us into the image of Christ. All the while looking at our performance and wondering if it could ever be true. You ever prayed that, believer? Like, Lord, I know you said that I'm going to be conformed to the image of Christ. But man, I'm a mess. How do I even believe this? How can I even have faith? Because look at my life. Look at my performance. Look at how I'm actually living. Here's a big one. Praying for God to move in our nation, our church, or our community. All the while never believing God could actually do anything about it. We really doubt that that's something God could actually answer. Can I challenge you, believer, that when you pray for Sovereign Grace Church, don't pray with doubting. Pray in faith that God can do something. Because he can't. Too many of us doubt what God can do. Too many of us doubt because we simply don't get reminding enough of what he took us from. And we don't believe that God could do that for someone else. Do you know who you are? Do you remember your past? I mean, for some of us, like, I know the present. It's still terrible. You do not realize that God has a promise and he's going to fulfill that in your life. Jesus loves the church. He has promises made to the church that he's going to deliver on. To cleanse and purify her. Praying with doubt is so common, isn't it? So many of us start with, oh, I believe in faith, and the very next day we're all just doubting it. You ever done that? You ever been moved by the Spirit in some area that you need to fix or work on before your relationship with God, and you felt convicted that day, you brought it before the Lord, Lord, I believe that you can do this. And then the next day your emotions got the best of you, and you started doubting everything you believed the day before. Your emotions are fickle, my emotions are fickle. The Word of God, it stands The word of the Lord endures forever. That's what scripture tells us. Here's another one that I think we pray as a God-honoring prayer with doubt. Because there's proof that shows that we actually doubt this statement. Praying for the return of Christ. Lord, we pray for your return. All the while we are doubting by the way we live. Have you adjusted your life based on Jesus could come back? Or are you just kind of telling people that, telling the Lord that, but you really don't believe that? 
If you know the Lord was returning, you would live a different way. I would live a different way. If I truly believed it, not with doubt, but with faith. Unfortunately, there's another way that people pray, which is legitimately probably more common than people would like to admit in the church. They neglect to pray at all. Neglecting to pray at all. Some of us simply do not pray much, or we've stopped altogether. Oh, we pray here and there. We pray with our kids because we need to be a good example as parents, or we pray with others because that's what's expected. But when it comes to us personally, prayer has been lacking. We haven't given it much thought. We unfortunately think it's a worthless cause at times. We tried it in the past. Seems like it's no longer worth pursuing. Some of us view praying to God as only for those that need a crutch in life. So I'm right now I'm pretty good. I don't really need to pray. Believers fall into this trap. Not just unbelievers that don't know God. Believers build self-confidence that is outside the word of God. And they believe that that's going to get them through. And those things fall apart. A marriage built on anything but the word of God will fall apart. Parenting outside the word of God will fall apart if it doesn't apply God's principles. Being a good co-worker will fall apart if you're trying to do it on your own strength. If you don't rely on the Spirit's work as a believer. Because in every one of us, there are things that have to be worked on by the Spirit of God. And if we're relying on ourselves to work those things out, we will always come to a failure. In fact, that's our default position. We start with that one. And we start by realizing when we come to saving faith that we need Jesus, we need to rely on him, only to think along the way that we now have figured it out, we no longer need him. We're the sheep that thinks the pastures we'll find are much better than the one the shepherd has for us. Believer, praying matters very little if you've not been in God's word. So I want to really tell you this. You won't find a desire to truly pray God-honoring prayers if this isn't a priority to you. It won't be. Your prayers will many times be self-centered, self-focused, in doubt, Because the real prayer that God really is looking for is the last one. is praying God-honoring prayers with faith and confidence. Praying God-honoring prayers with faith and confidence. We pray believing fully that God can save anyone that we pray for. We truly believe that God can penetrate the heart of stone that we are praying for. It's not a hypothetical he can do it. If he, rose, if he had Lazarus raised from the dead, he could do it in another person's life. Don't just be amazed by what God has done in the past. Realize he's doing things here in the here and now. Too many people are like, God is amazing. Look at what he did back then. Church, I don't want to look at what the church used to be like. I want to see what God is going to do. We've got a king that's coming. We need to be ready. 
We need to believe it. Not just talk about it. Believe it with all of our being. We pray with confidence that he hears us because he has promised so in his word. As was mentioned yesterday, God who cannot lie. Cannot lie. If we believe that, we're going to trust him. When everything's falling apart in our lives, we're going to go, you know what? I trust God knows what he's doing. I trust the sovereign hand over my life. We pray believing that God will give us the words to say in speaking to others. We don't just shut down and go, there's no way God can do this in my life. God uses different people at different times for his glory. And not all of them have the personality that you think it takes. God uses those that are more outgoing and those that are more introverted. He uses both for his glory. We pray with confidence that God will take care of us as his own. Do you believe that God really has your best interest in mind because of of his own glory? Whatever he's doing in your life has a purpose, has a reason for it. It is not wasted. God is moving in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ. Do you believe that when he promises never to leave you, he really means that? That even when you feel like he's not there, he is. One of my favorite statements is that text in the Gospels where the man just goes, Jesus, Lord, help my unbelief. That's what we need to be like. When we don't really believe, but we're praying, Lord, help me believe this. Lord, I don't really believe you really can do this, but I want to believe. I'm struggling to believe how this is good for me, what I'm going through. We pray with confidence that God knows the struggles we face, be it internal or external. God knows what you've never mentioned to your spouse that you're struggling with inside. God knows what it is that is on your mind that nobody else knows about. He's truly sovereign over everything. And you and I need to believe that in faith. Without doubting. So what would these according to his will prayers look like? The context here throughout the book of 1 John is in line with keeping his commandments. As we look throughout the rest of scripture, we clearly see things that are in line with the will of God. Here are practical things that you can say, this is what God would want me to pray for. Number one, praying to reach the lost. Romans 10.1, Paul's heart for Israel. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. That is a God-honoring prayer. And God will deliver on that. Number two, praying for bold gospel proclamation. In Ephesians 6, 18 through 20, where we discuss 
the armor of the Lord, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And Paul then turns it to himself. And for me, he's asking this church to pray for him, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. What Paul is saying is, while I'm in prison, in jail, pray that I still have boldness to speak the gospel. Let me pause for a moment and make this statement, believer. You and I have nowhere near the tension Paul had in having to preach the gospel while he's chained up. We're not bold even when we have open opportunities. We cower. We're afraid. What will they think? Number three, praying for ministry support. Matthew 9, 36 through 38. But when he saw the multitudes, multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. This is Jesus. Because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I pray for this one a lot more frequently than you think. That God will send more people that want to partner in ministry. That want to serve God together with us. That those that are spiritually not as alive as they should be in the church, would be awakened to service. Would be awakened to do what it is that God's called them to in the body. Number four, praying for church unity. John 17, verses 20 and 21. I do not pray for these alone, that's those disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Unity in the body of Christ is a prayer that God wants to answer. Because this is a prayer that Jesus himself prayed. Number five, praying for God to strengthen others' faith. Luke twenty two thirty two, But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Though Jesus knew that Peter would falter in the beginning when he was going to the cross, he saw beyond that. He saw what, Je what Peter would one day become a rock for the rest of the disciples. Don't discount what God could do with a person that's faltered and failed. You don't see the end result. There's still time for them to get stronger again. We give up too soon. I've been asked this before. Pastor Roman, don't you know don't you see what this person's been going through? Don't you see what they're like? Why do you see this getting any better? Because I see failures that God turns around all the time in the Word of God. One of my favorite stories is the story of Gideon. 
The guy's hiding. You know what is said? Mighty man of valor. Really? He's a coward hiding it away. That's because that was the end result, not what was going on during that time. And this isn't some prosperity, promising preaching that we're trying to do here. We're trying to declare what the Word of God clearly states. That God uses failures all the time for His glory and His purposes. And when the Holy Spirit came in the day of Pentecost, Peter had boldness he never had when Jesus was there in person. You would think that Peter might have reconsidered when Jesus looked at him after he denied him. Peter had boldness only after the fact, when he was restored. Here's another prayer that is according to God's will. Praying for resistance in temptation. Matthew 26, 41. Matthew 26, 41 says, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There are little things in your life that if you actually took the time to pray before just going along with what you have to struggle with, God would be more than willing to answer that prayer. And the important part here is watch and pray. There's a lot of people that pray without watching. They don't pay attention to their surroundings. They're like, God's going to protect me even though I'm foolish with my decisions right now. No, the first word is watch. Be alert. Be awake. And definitely pray. There's a reason why you and I, we need guardrails in certain things in our lives, even though some of us are like, well, I'm more confident, I'm more mature now, I can handle it. No, you can't. There are areas in your life that you should have guardrails up because you know that you need to watch. There are areas that you think that you only need to protect your children with, you need to protect yourself with as an adult. Because every single one of us has that same capacity. Here's one that I hope and pray we all pray in this church. Praying for a deeper walk with God. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 19. Listen to what it says. Therefore I also, this is Paul, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, look at this encouragement, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. What a statement. What a prayer. Are you thankful for people that you pray for? Are you thankful for how God's moving in their life? The immediate context in 1 John leads us to see that one of the prayers specifically referred to here in accordance to God's will is a prayer for the well-being of the brethren. Number two, praying for those among us. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. 
All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. What we clearly see here in the statement is that he's speaking to brothers, fellow believers. When we see a brother or sister in sin or living in sin, we have the responsibility before God to pray for them. Not to accuse them, not to judge them, not to point out their flaw, but to pray for them. The easiest thing is to say something before praying. We see something going on and the person's going in the wrong direction. It's vitally important that we pray for them and their restoration. The restoration fellowship with God and with the saints. There are people in this church, I wish they could hear my heart sometimes. That I want more for them than just simply showing up on a Sunday morning once a year. I want them to know Christ. I want them to love him once again. I want them to walk with him once again. I'm not here to judge them. I know that God will deal with his own as he sees fit. And that's essentially what this text is about. Let God be God. There's something that is said in this text that truly moves the heart of God. If you look at verse 16, as one translation puts it, if you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give that person life. What a statement. You're seeing a person going down the wrong path that's a follower of Jesus and you're praying in faith that God restores them, God's going to give them life. Questions: Do we believe that, or do we go back to ah, sounds like a good idea, or do we believe that? I want to challenge you, believer. How many of your prayers that you think are in faith are really in doubt? Do you really believe that God can restore that relationship, that marriage, that friendship, that loss, or are you just saying that? God promises to restore a believer others pray for. So I have a challenge this week. We're going to start praying for people that have been in this church, that are no longer in this church, that are followers of Christ. And we're going to make a list and pray for them to come back to the fellowship of the saints. You want to love your brothers and sisters more, believer? Pray for them. Pray more often for them. You love most those you pray for most. I think it's even clear with the example that Jesus leaves behind for us when he prays for his own. In fact, Jesus says, I'm not praying for everybody, I'm praying for your, yours, the ones that you've given to me. We cannot interpret this text as eternal life because in verse 17 it's obviously speaking of physical life with the brethren in view. Because John does not clearly define what this sin is, it's more than likely clear to his readers that would know what he meant. John is writing to a local church that had things going back and forth, divisions, schisms. The church would have known what he's talking about here when he's bringing this up. Unfortunately for us as, you know, living hundreds of years later, it's hard to piece some of that together because we don't have the full context sometimes. 
He is saying that if the brother commits the sin leading, leading to death, they should not pray that God gives them life. He does say that. But what are the views of the sin that's being talked about? The sin unto death or sin that leads to death. Well, some view it as a particularly heinous sin, murder, sorcery, idolatry, a brother that gets involved in those things you should no longer pray for. They've swapped to darkness. Many argue from the Old Testament that there are degrees of sin. Rabbis have taught this. Christians have taught this. Some will argue it's apostasy, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Others view this to be the unsaved that are in view, and they're persisting in sinning against the light of the gospel. I don't see that in the text, because brethren that are mentioned. So I think that one just clearly doesn't hold its weight. Others view this as a sin, not a particular sin, but a class of sin which God sometimes chooses to judge with, with swift judgment. And then there's another view, a deliberate sin against the established standard of God's word. What do we mean by that? Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons who offer strange fire that God does not accept. This seems to tie into John's command not to pray for life because essentially God just judges them right on the spot. Corinthians who, who committed a sin against the body of Christ when they partook of the Lord's Supper in an irreverent way. We read this every single month when we partake. That it's important for us to examine ourselves. We also have the example of Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit about what they gave out of their proceeds to the church community. They lied. I would argue that it seems to point in reference to a sin that has deadly consequences for continual disregard. I think the best explanation in a local church context of what we see here is what we see in the church of Corinth regarding the man who was sexually immoral with his father's wife, blatantly opposing the standards of Scripture. In fact, if you have your Bibles, it should be on the screen as well, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5, here's what it says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Yeah, this stuff was going on in the church. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is where church discipline is a difficult thing to practice. The Corinthian church didn't even just tolerate this incestuous sin. They promoted it. They were proud of it. They were more edgy than their culture. Oh, you think it's pretty... Wild out there. Look at what we have going on here. The right response was separation from her brother like this, delivering him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit would still be saved. It is not to ultimately destroy that person, but for him to come to his senses. 
This is more than likely in reference to a sin here that would lead to a premature death for this man if he continued. The protection of the church was now gone and they were left to fend for themselves. The goal was still final salvation, but the discipline would still be coming on him if he continued. God still chastens his own. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, church. I think the harder part is probably not the praying part, as many of us always think. I think the harder part is the fellowship part in this text. Because the truth is, when certain people are not walking with God, we may not pray for them because we simply just forget to pray for them. That's part of the problem. But fellowship is a little more personal. What do you mean you can't spend time with them? What do you mean you need to separate from them? Now it's getting a little more dicey. Now it's getting a little more controversial. Now you're going to be accused of being a bigot in today's culture. How could you do that to your own church member? I could see modern Christians talking about what Paul just did here. How could you do that? Don't you know it's a brother that's struggling with sin? That was the right move. In fact, Paul goes ahead in verses 9 through 13 and says this. I write to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. That's in the Bible? I don't want to believe that. That pulls against what I would want. Listen to what verse 12 says. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside, those that are outside the church context? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. When a person's contaminated the local body of Christ, they need to be dealt with this way. There, is no, there should be no controversy in any church in how this is approached. Most Christians want to go about judging the world, but not calling out their own to account in the body of Christ. Some of you may think I'm a little harsh as a pastor sometimes in what I bring and present in this church, but I want you to understand something. I understood years ago that some of the things in this Bible are not easy for me to practice as a pastor. In fact, they're very controversial and sound very hateful at times. But the truth is God's standard has to stay. It's not my opinion, and it should never be my opinion. It shouldn't be yours either. Today's church wants to rewrite the Bible. Today's church wants to say, we just need to be friendly with everybody and never account, take anything to account what's going on in the local church when we're a horrible testimony to the world. There are things that ought to be fixed in the church before we go say anything else. Everybody's busy calling out the world. Look at what they're doing, infiltrating our schools, infiltrating our homes through their shows, through the school systems, through the colleges. And the question to you and me is this, where are we? How are we living? How are we practicing in the local church context? 
We ought to judge those things in the church and call them out, not leave them unresolved. There are a lot of things in the church that are left unresolved that God has wanted us to take care of for many years. If you remember reading in the book of Revelation, one of the things that was mentioned to one of the churches is that they tolerated certain things they should have never tolerated. That's the church. We do so not only to keep the church pure, but to help the believer caught in sin to restoration. Your goal is not to cause them to be even more spiraling out of control, but to wake them from their sleep. Awake them to righteousness, as God would want. The goal is never to bring them to account just to judge them, but to bring them back into restoration with the body of Christ and the Lord Jesus himself. Keeping company is essentially continuing a close relationship or friendship with a person that deliberately refuses to repent of that sin. When a person refuses to repent of these sins, there should not be a close relationship with them from that local church body. It does not mean that person cannot come into church and hear the message of God's word. But remember one truth in scripture, believer, that bad company corrupts good morals, and we need to start believing that. Bad company sometimes enters the church and is disguised as a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ who doesn't see that they're outside the boundaries of Scripture. If the church practiced this correctly, we would not be accepting the very things God opposes today in our churches. There'd be certain flags that wouldn't be flying. It's blasphemy what we've done to the standards of God's word. Now those are the obvious ones, right? Those are the ones that everybody still is popular in many churches to still stand against. What about things in our homes? What about things that we tolerate in our own lives and among the brethren? Shouldn't we take care of those things? Shouldn't we want better marriages? Shouldn't we want better homes? Shouldn't we want a better family unit here in the church without the divisions that many times occur? Remember that people you spend time with can corrupt your own standards of God's word. Every follower of Christ who bends on moral standards typically does so because they have a soft spot for somebody that they personally know that's struggling with that sin. We cater a lot more than we realize. You know why you're perfectly fine going after the LGBT community? Because it doesn't personally affect you. You know what you're not perfectly fine with? Going after adultery in a marriage, because that's tolerated. You know people personally in those areas. You tolerate certain things because you know people that struggle with those sins. So you're soft on that. Or even worse, you're soft because you struggle with those things. You don't hold to the standard of God's word on those things. This isn't a let's judge everyone we can find thing. This is purity of the church matters. We ought to be followers of Christ, and when we do fall, we should restore one another, not leave them hanging, not leave them in their sin and pretending it's really okay, God will figure it out, or God will send someone else their way. So many have a soft spot for someone they know who's practicing certain sins, like adultery, fornication, homosexuality, or any other sexual immorality. You and I tolerate it without even realizing we tolerate it. 
why so many of us are afraid to say something. We know someone that is. What's worse is we tolerate it in the church. That's essentially what Paul's getting at. People out in the world, of course they're going to struggle with that. That's who they are. That's natural. They're sinful. Believer, you may think the best way to win a person back to fellowship with the saints is to bend the standards of Scripture by not addressing the elephant in the room. We as a church cannot cater to that. We have a standard to keep, and that's God's word. Not what Pastor Roman thinks, not what any of the leaders in the church think, not what you think. We have a standard to keep, and that's God's word. And it's not always going to be popular. It's not always going to be easy. In fact, there are feelings that are going to be hurt if you do it the right way, which we'll get to here in a moment. Dealing with sin in the church is an important part of ministry and must be done with grace. You must pray for that person. But praying for that person without addressing that person is not doing what God would want. There are so many people that we would rather just pray for rather than move where God wants us to move. And we feel very uncomfortable. We feel like, I don't have a right because I'm a sinner. Paul was a sinner when he wrote this. Let's cut that out, please, in our theology. That's a horrible lie that we believe, thinking, I can't address another brother or sister because I have flaws in my own life. Last time I checked, not a single one of us has arrived at the image of Jesus. Not one. Paul included, Peter included, when they're writing these things. Dealing with sin in the church is an important part of ministry. Truth must be stood for consistently. We cannot show partiality in these things. What we call in one brother or sister, we have to call in another brother or sister. It has to be consistent. So how do we know that this method works, this disassociation or no longer a close relationship with people like this that are in the church. Well, here's how we know it works. It worked for this believer. This believer who committed this horrible sin was repentant and wanted to come back into fellowship. Listen to what we hear about in 2 Corinthians when Paul writes to this church again as to the result. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 11 in the New Living Translation. I am not overstating it when I say... That the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. They separated from him. Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote to you as I did to test you and see if you would fully comply with my instructions. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit, so that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. The part that I found astounding here is that you look at the church, the church took Paul seriously on this. They're like, we're going to do this. We're going to draw back from this brother. We want him to see that he's wrong. And when he came back into repentance, unfortunately, they didn't want to let him back in. This is the danger when a believer is non-repentant. We tolerate the sin that we should be confronting. When a believer wants to be restored, we reject him instead of accept him. We need to be careful. These things we need to get right. 
There needs to be separation from an unrepentant brother or sister with the hope that they come back to the fellowship of the saints. When the broken do come back, we ought to forgive them and welcome them back. As God would a prodigal coming home. That is so important. You don't continue judging a person when they've asked for forgiveness and they want to be restored. You help that brother or sister back up and you restore them into fellowship. The reason the church gets it wrong is because we do it backwards, don't we? What we need to call out, we ignore in the name of tolerance. Where we need to show mercy by forgiving and comforting when a saint comes back to repentance, we only judge. We do it backwards. What needs to be said, we don't say. What doesn't need to be said, we do. We do serious damage when we do not respond as God would want. As pointed out here by Paul, we leave a person in discouragement who longs to get right with God when we continually judge them. Essentially, we were playing right into the Satan's hand here. And we become tools of his. When a brother or sister is distraught because they realize they've broken God's heart and God's laws and his commandments and they want to be restored in the fellowship and we're going, no, brother or sister, we know what you did. We're just trying to make sure we're doing it right. That's not right. That should be something where we restore that brother or sister in the fellowship again. Because that person will be discouraged and very well may go another path that's even more destructive. We need to get this balance right in the church. Paul reiterates the point that there is to be separation in certain cases when a person refuses. Take note of those who refuse to obey what is said in this letter. Stay away from them so that they will be ashamed. Don't think of them as enemies. This is important. But warn them as you would a brother or sister. If you ever have a sibling that you cared for in your life, you warn them because you care. You warn them because you care. You don't treat brothers and sisters as enemies. But you do step away so they realize that what they've done is wrong and hopefully they come to their senses. This is very hard to practice. To the point of the sin leading to death, I believe the best explanation here is a sin to which there are clear consequences of death should the person not repent. Will we always know what this looks like? I don't believe that is possible, to be perfectly honest with you. Because we're not God. We don't see everything. We don't know everything. What we do know is that we need to exercise church discipline correctly in the context of the local church. And it may be that when a brother or sister is under discipline, that they repent and are restored. But if they refuse and continue, they will be further, further disciplined and brought to the point of death, possibly, with which no prayer can be offered on their behalf. There may be a point of no return. And there's nothing that can be offered to spare them of that final consequence. So in closing, how's your prayer life, believer? How's your prayer life? Is it even there? Do you pray regularly? Infrequently? Never? Is God on your mind and on your lips? Maybe you've never prayed because you don't know how, what to say. Start with a simple statement of faith. You're watching this online. You don't know how to pray. You've never prayed. You start by turning from your sin in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. You ask God to forgive you as a sinner. You believe that Jesus died on your behalf and that he rose again the third day. 
there's no more prayer that's more important than is offered the prayer of a prodigal son returning. Whether it is a person that has never come to Christ or whether it's a believer that wants to restore their walk with God. Prayer may not define the way you live your life. Maybe because you've simply given up. Can I challenge you this morning not to give up? Just because your prayer life isn't what you want it to be or should be doesn't mean you give up. May today be the day that you say, you know what, I'm going to make prayer an important part of my life again. I'm going to make it a point to line myself with the word of God and to pray what God would want me to pray with faith. Maybe you pray quite often, but your prayers are simply selfish desires. You pray for only the things that you would want. You don't really have others in mind, you have yourself in mind. You don't really have God's word in mind, you have only what you would want. You just want to be treated the way you want to be treated, but you've never asked, how is it that God would want you to treat others? You need to be willing to do that. Maybe you pray for the right things, but you do so inconsistently, as we just mentioned. You pray, but it's so inconsistent. Like, it's a hit or miss all the time. You talk to God today, you forget to do it for a whole week. It's not a good relationship with God. We ought to speak to our Heavenly Father. We ought to make it a point to do it on a daily basis. We need him every day. Our daily bread. Maybe you pray for the things that God would want, such as reaching the lost, the church to become closer and spiritually grow, but you do so with doubt. You just simply don't believe it's possible. Can, can, can I challenge you, believer? That God wants that for the church. God wants the unity of believers in the body of Christ, doing the things that he's called them to. We should pray with confidence and faith because God can save anyone we pray for. Anyone. There's no exception. We can pray in confidence that God will give us the words to speak to others. It isn't about you. It isn't about your approach. Even though those things are important to work on, it is about what God can do through you. And you need to trust that he knows what he's doing. He will take care of you as his child. You can believe that. Take it to the bank, believer. That is true, and it's always going to be true. We can even pray for that brother or sister who's battling sin and pray that God can restore them and give them life in this day that we live in. 